spec savers, yeah. He's <laughs> far away. So we got uh, people at Cheltenham Festival, uh, a certain former minister, Matt Hancock, and Carol Vorderman. Now, it seems to be a fairly innocuous picture, except Carol Vorderman has become a bit of a left-wing warrior over the last six or seven months, and she uh, takes it to the keyboard and starts firing shots. And particularly one of the targets, in very unsavory language, over the last few months has been Mr. Hancock. Well, probably everybody had a go at him. And then, obviously, the paparazzi spotted them together, chin-wagging and having a good time, and straight away, Twitter just blew up. And everybody was absolutely enraged. On all sides, the left and the right, everybody was absolutely enraged. Some were making uh, certain comments about Mrs. or Miss Vorderman, I don't know what she's called now, having more faces than a Big Ben. So, <laughs> really, it's the reality of the fact that I think we all have seen situations or find ourselves even in situations where either we've seen somebody being hypocritical or we ourselves have been in a hypocritical situation. It's something that occurs very often. And we're coming in our journey in the book of Acts, where we are camping right now at the moment, to probably one of the interesting passages where really, um, it's really interesting. It's one of the passages, I'll let you into a secret, preachers don't like to preach on, because it's a little bit uh, difficult to, to, to preach on. And my, my understanding kind of uh, camping in it over the last couple of weeks, it's actually, it's probably uncomfortable because it's misunderstood. But the beautiful thing about continuing our series, and we're doing a series at the moment in a book of Acts, looking at what a normal church looks like. And this is probably the very first moment where you're kind of thinking, well, now we can, in a small way, relate to this. Because until now, the journey of the church in Acts has been a little bit unrelatable and pretty spectacular. And really, they've, 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 they've experienced sensational growth where 3,000 people became followers of Jesus in one day, and the church started gathering together, mainly in homes, also gathering to, at, at a temple. They were sharing everything that they had. So it was incredible generosity, miracles, people becoming followers of Jesus. I mean, amazing stuff that was happening. But now, a bit of reality kicks in. And it's really interesting, actually, the way John MacArthur puts it. He says... We're going to look at the inauguration, if you win, it will, at what sin in the church looks like. Sin in the life of Christians. And he says, uh, I really pray to the Lord that as you hear this unfolded, you'll find a place in your heart that makes you perhaps more alert, more wary, more thoughtful about the seriousness of sin in the church. And until now, there's been highlights that everybody's kind of signing up to. And whenever I speak about the book of Acts, I always say, look, let's make sure that we don't Photoshop, we don't put a filter on, on just the bits that we really like, but we actually let the... And I, this is why I love the Bible, and this is why I'm standing and I'm preaching on this passage, which is uncomfortable, and particularly uncomfortable as I'm aware that death is actually something that's very close to you, particularly today, and yet it is part of God's Word, unedited, unchanged... And it does us good to actually not edit, not take it out, because it is slightly uncomfortable. Let's read the passage and, and, and see what it says to us. 
Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Backstory, just before we would have heard about a man called Barnabas, who sold a piece of property and came and gave the money to the leadership of the church, saying, use this however you need to help other people. So they did the same thing, but slightly different. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Did it not belong to you before you sold it? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to humans, but also to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all because of what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She said, yes, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the, floor, at the door, and they will carry you also out. And that moment she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young man came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And then great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now you can understand why it's not easy for a preacher to delve into a text like that. And yet, actually, I love the Bible's honesty because it adds to its credibility. It doesn't hide the reality of messy life in church. And whenever I hear about a church that struggles and people in the church who are sinners, and that's me and you, I say, that's normal, that's real. If you hear of a church that doesn't struggle, that doesn't have sinners, that doesn't deal with sin, I would say, well, raise your eyebrows. The amazing thing that happens here is a real contrast between what we've seen before in Barnabas, where Barnabas sold this piece of land and unselfishly came and laid it at the apostles' feet. And there's this incredible contrast that is happening here, and you can see that there is this selfish deception within this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Their names are quite ironic. His name means God is gracious, and her name means beautiful. Sapphire, Sapphira, Sapphire. You, you get the, the analogy. And yet, they are anything but that. There's a real contrast in what is happening here. What's going on? They probably wanted a limelight. They probably saw what Barnabas did, and they saw the reaction of the church where people were blown away thinking, wow, what an incredibly selfless man. What a generous man to sell his land and, and bring it. This, this is not what normal people do. We are all normally selfish and have a bent towards being selfish. Whatever culture, whatever time in history we live in. So the church must have reacted with a real sense of amazement at Barnabas. And Ananias and Sapphira with their pride being prompted 
and stirred, they said to themselves, we want to get a piece of that. And they said, we're going to do the same, but slightly different. We're going to sell the property, keep some from ourselves, and then go and give to the church, to the church leaders, some of the part of that money, and pretend that we gave it all. So it's a win-win situation. We make look ourselves good. We get the applause, we get the plaudits, we get everything, all that comes with it, and we keep the money. I mean, it's a win-win deal. And there's a real problem with this, because really, this is lying. It's deceptive. The, the, the actual word that describes their uh, sort of put aside for oneself is the Greek word that actually sounds like embezzling. This is what they did. In order to get themselves to look good because of pride. See, all the giving that came into the church at that time wasn't forced. It wasn't as if the leaders of the church were saying to people, now you go home and, and you sell your land or you sell your house or you sell your car and bring the money to the church. The leaders of the church didn't do anything like that. It was prompted internally by the Spirit of God. It was voluntary. There was no pressure. It wasn't like one of those churches where you go and their offering takes 10 minutes. Just somebody does a gig for 10 minutes telling you to sow into the ministry and you get blessed a hundredfold and a thousandfold and that kind of stuff. No, it wasn't like that. It wasn't even talked about. It was just the Spirit of God internally was motivating people to live generous lives. Because this is what happens when you come to Jesus. Your, your heart gets turned upside down, and instead of your heart being all for you, you begin to get the heart of God for other people. And suddenly from a selfish person, you become a generous person. So those people came and gave voluntarily like Barnabas. And it was fueled by worship. Instead, what Ananias and Sapphira do in their deception, it is fueled by pride and wanting to be seen. Jesus preached about this in his most famous so-called sermon. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters uh, 5 to 7. And when Jesus talks about the giving, he uses this uh, beautiful picture where he says, when you give, do not blow you know, the trumpet at the street corner so everybody can see you. But instead, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Which is the figure of speech that Jesus is using. In order to say, do it discreetly. Don't make a show about it. Don't do it for people to see you and say, wow, you're great. Do it for God as an act of worship. And this is the very heart of the problem that's going on. They, in, in their selfish deception, Ananias and Sapphira did it for themselves, not for God. It was lying. It was dishonest. It was pride-fueled. And when Peter challenges them, he uses this expression that's quite troubling, where it, Peter is making an inference uh, that actually there was a point in their planning, in their crafty planning, where they gave room for Satan to actually come in and begin to take influence on their lives. 
And this is what happens. It's when we open the door for pride to take control of our lives. We're opening the door for Satan to begin to control us. And Sunday morning, (laughs) Mothering Sunday, isn't the time to get into a big conversation about possession and influence and all that kind of stuff. One thing is for sure that while those who are followers of Jesus Spirit-filled cannot be possessed by the devil, they can be influenced by the devil if they don't live in intimacy with God. But that's a longer sort of conversation. And this is what is happening here. It's the same kind of thing that happened, if you remember, with Judas. When Satan entered his heart, he, he left a door open for his pride. And it can look very different, this pride thing. But actually, Satan then comes and begins to teach him. And he says, ah, you know what you need to do? Give some of the money to the church. You win. Keep some of the money for yourself. You win. Everybody's happy. No problem with that. And guess what? Satan will tell you this. And this is a standard phrase every single time he tempts you. No one will ever know. And that's really what Ananias and Sapphira did. They conspired. They, it, this wasn't this was an, an act that was involuntary. You know, you and I have been called, I mean, you, you may be really great Christians who never lie. You know, I'm picking on one of those things that's probably most common for most of us. You know, you might, you might never lie, but how many times you get put under pressure on a situation and, and you lie? You know, I mean, the olden days where you had a phone, you know, landline, you know, and uh, particularly this is uh, spouses, you know, somebody's ringing, wants to speak to your spouse. You put your hand on the receiver, right? <laughs> Come on. Show someone on the phone. I'm not home. I'm in the bath. I'm cooking tea. Sorry, not available at the moment. You know, those kind of things. But this was premeditated. It wasn't under pressure, a little thing, you know, pressure. Oh, I don't know what to say. This was premeditated. They sat down. They planned it. Everything was premeditated. They wanted right from the very beginning to do this, to keep back part of the money for himself. This is what he says. With his wife's full knowledge... This is not like the husband going out and betting the family's money. This is together. They had a family council. They sat down and they said, this is what we're going to do. And that's how the deception came to be. And that's why Peter is saying, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart and you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept the money for yourself? And this is the other thing about the deception. The deception wasn't just to the people in the church or the leaders in the church. What Peter is saying repeatedly twice, both to him and to her, is you lied to who? The Holy Spirit, to God himself. Because the church is Jesus' bride. The believers are Jesus' people. So actually when we do something towards one another, it affects our relationship with God. And this is very visible in what. Peter had said in his challenge, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. He might say, I didn't lie to the Holy Spirit, I lied to you. No, but by lying to the church, by lying to the leaders in the church, by coming with a supposed act of worship, where you're you're lying to God, you're lying to the Holy Spirit, and that's why the deception is so dangerous in this. 
there's an undertone of this, and it's a, it's a great lesson uh, in, in the Old Testament in Joshua 7. The people of God are trying to conquer one of the uh, strongholds, one of the cities, the city is Ai, and they keep getting defeated. And Joshua is frustrated, he speaks to the Lord, and the Lord speaks back, and he said that there's compromise, there's sin in the camp, so to speak, and you need to deal with this. And it turns out that Achan, one of the warriors, had taken, had stolen something he wasn't supposed to do. And as a result of that, all God's people, the whole community, suffered as a result of it. Sometimes we underestimate or play down the reality of the impact of my own personal sin with regards to God and the community of believers that I'm in. And this is a great reminder here. As Peter is saying, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. The sad thing about this is that Sapphira seems to have a chance to do a turnaround. It doesn't seem like with Ananias, there is this question, oh, did you do this? Did you do this? It's like when you come home, you know, when you're a little boy uh, and you've done, you, you, you know, you've done something wrong and mom's saying, did you do this? And you've got an option. You can tell the truth or you can lie. Ananias didn't have an option. He didn't get asked the question. But Sapphira is asked the question. Peter is asking her the question, said, he says, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Says, yes, she said, that is the price. So the sad thing is there isn't a turnaround in her heart. She's powering through with that story. It's like politicians, isn't it? It's like the stuff that is evident, there's recordings, there's this. No, no, I wasn't there. I didn't do that. I, you know, they're just sticking to the story, going to the very end. It's what the Bible calls an unrepented heart. And that's the tragic thing about this deception. And it is heartbreaking in what is happening here. But the real interesting thing is that Peter has a very unusual reaction. Now, let me tell you. I'll, I'll let you into a secret this morning. Church leaders and pastors are very impressed when people are generous. The good ones... Good pastors are just impressed because God is turning people's hearts from inward, selfish, to outward, generous. No skin in the game. The dodgy pastors or the dodgy leaders are thinking, more money in the church coffers. It looks good in the accounts. We can buy new this and new that, and I can get a bigger salary. So people giving money is always a good thing. And most leaders are very susceptible straight away. When somebody is coming and offering to give, they're going, bring it on, bro. Bring it on. This is great. We love generous people. So the default position for Peter would have been to say, Ananias and Sapphira will love you guys. You are honored members of this church. We really treasure you. In fact, we're going to do a plaque that we're going to put up on the wall you know, or we're going to do a bench with a carving, Ananias and Sapphira, mighty donors of this church. I mean, sometimes it freaks me out. I go to churches like, churches are like 100 or 150 years old, you know, and in very visible places, there's just names of people donating money. And I'm thinking, that's not, not don't let the left, no, not kind of on the same thing. But that's another story. So it would have been very normal for Peter to actually say, this is great, I'm really impressed, and be really blinded. By the money itself. 
But Peter wasn't blinded by it. He could have been pleased with the momentum. He could have thought, man, this church is going places. We had Barnabas last week, and he gave loads. And this week, we've got Ananias and Sapphira. Church growth, come on. Put it on Instagram. We're laughing, but that's real. That's how it operates. We look good. Thankfully, Peter wasn't like that. And because he was filled with the Spirit of God, he saw the deception. He had the gift of discerning the spirits. And behind the money that was given, and I don't, don't ask me how and you know what happened in Peter's mind and heart, we don't know. We're not privy to that. But one thing is for sure, the Spirit of God told him and showed him and said to him, something's going on here. This is not the whole amount of money. These people are deceptive. These people are trying to con you. And the congregation and me, God is saying. Because they're bringing some and they're keeping some. And it's pride fueled. It's in order to impress people. And it's not good. And Peter, with a wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God and with a gift of discerning the spirits, challenges them. And he says it really clearly. He says, you didn't have to do this. Nobody forced you. We didn't ask you to bring money. You could have kept money for yourselves and nobody would have batted an eyelid. You could have sold all the land and brought 10% or 5% or 1%. And we would have been blessed. You didn't have to do this. That's the folly. But that's the way Satan operates. And that's the way he deceived Ananias and Sapphira. But the challenge that Peter brings, and that's the truth is there. He says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to the church. You didn't just deceive us, but you deceived God as well. So actually your heart is filled with deception. And that's the spiritual discernment you see in Peter's reaction in this. Stories told that Oliver Cromwell wanted to have somebody to come and paint his portrait. And the person came, and he must have been a seasoned painter working on portraits for the celebrities of the time or the, the nobles of the time, the people that had the money. And obviously, they would adjust the portrait in, in, in a way to try to make them look uh, a, a little bit better. So it's the equivalent uh, of, of a modern-day Insta-filter. And the, the, the painter did the first draft, and it looked very different. And apparently, Oliver Cromwell had quite a lot of warts. And he called the painter back in, and he said, you paint me. Warts and all. Because he wanted to be authentic. He wanted to be truthful. He didn't want to be deceitful in what is happening here. And that's why Peter challenges Ananias and Sapphira. Because this is a huge matter for the church. This is very important for a very much young baby church. Right at the very beginning. This is establishing foundations. Because I tell you what, the news would have got out anyway. Because somebody would have seen them driving around, you know, you know, with this cart that had new wooden alloys. I don't know what they would have had. You know, Mike, listen about the alloys. He's looking up already. You know, and, and, and somebody would have said, hey, 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 what's going on there? 
They just gave all their money, sold their land, gave their money to Jesus. Something's, something's going on there. You know, you know what it's like in your neighborhood when you've got somebody in your neighborhood and, you know, they're driving a new Beamer. And they're like, oh, I know, they must be doing something. Uh, we know what they're like. They would have lived in a very close-knit neighborhood. It wouldn't have taken long before people would have found out. And then guess what? The church would have come into disrepute. And what people would have said to them is what people said about Carl Vorderman. You big fat hypocrite. We know what you're like. You say that you sell the land to give to the poor, to give to God, and now you don't do that. You're just like us. So this is crucial for the church. It's groundbreaking. It's so important. And that's why Peter, under the anointing of the Spirit of God, challenges them. Most of the time, when preachers don't preach this passage, I think they don't preach it because they miss one important bit. God did not kill Ananias and Sapphira. You show me in the text where it says God killed Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not going to do a show of hands, but I could simply ask you, how many of you before this morning, before looking into the text, would have thought that actually it was punishment from God, that God killed them? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. I mean, my presupposition is they probably had a heart attack. They probably got cold, and, 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 and the immensity of what was happening there got hold of them, and they just had a massive heart attack, and they passed out. There's actually no hint that God is punishing them. So preachers don't preach that, because frankly, if you preach that, and you've come to church this morning, and it's your first time in church, you're thinking, I'm not coming next week. <laughs> You know, I'm putting, I'm putting a tenor in the offering and I'm keeping another tenor for me. Don't want to drop dead. That's what people could say. And that's why people are frightened to look at that. But if you clearly look and let the word of God speak to us, that's what, what he says. What the word of God teaches us in this passage, beware of being a hypocrite. Beware of being a hypocrite. That's the lesson. And if anything, it's probably even deeper because you and I, are hypocrites. And if God was punishing and killing people, man alive, we would have been many, many times dead because we've been hypocritical in coming into church and sitting in church. God is so gracious and so kind. And God is holy as well. And he wants people who are genuine and authentic and their worship to him. The sobering truth this morning is this. And this has to hit home somehow to every single one of us. God doesn't want fakers in church. He wants people who are honest. Sobering truth number two. You may fool people, but you can't fool God. He sees it. And actually, to be really honest, stuff what people think. It's what God thinks is most important. And if, if he actually knows everything, and if he gives us grace, we haven't got anything to fear about people. The question for us, it's, and on one level, I think the challenge is it on a personal level. 
And I think we need to realize that sin is serious. Even if God didn't kill, as some might have thought, Ananias and Sapphira, sin killed them in that instance. Their own rebellious sin killed them. Praise God for his grace that every single sin that I do doesn't kill me. But the truth, spiritually speaking, that Paul is talking about when he writes in, in, in the letter to the Romans, he says, the wages of sin is death. So sin is serious. And I want to say this this morning. I, you know, we've been going with mom through so many appointments with consultants and so many scans, and they're so difficult. And there, there is a part of me that thinks, just lie to me. Tell me everything is fine. Don't give me the bad news. You know, but actually that's probably like 10% of the time I'm thinking that. 90% of the time I'm thinking, as bad the bad news is, I want to know the truth. And that's what God does with us with sin. It's not good kidding ourselves. Sin is serious and has serious consequences on us, on our relationship with God, and our relationship with other people. And if we are living this morning, if, if me and you are living, we, you know, like and I'm not talking about accidental stuff. I'm not talking about the fact that you shouted at your kid this morning because they were doing your head in. I'm, I'm talking about stuff that's premeditated, you know, whether it's an re- illicit relationship, whether it's a handling of money that isn't right, whether it's attitudes with regards to how you treat your husband or your wife or your kids that, that that's, that's premeditated, that's chronic, that's been ongoing, that's not just a, a, a thing that's exploded in a moment, that's repeated. There's a challenge there. There's sin there that you, you, you need to come to God with because it will, it will kill you. Spiritually speaking, it will kill you and it will destroy everything around you. Sin is serious and that's, that's what this teaches us this morning. And we, we must remind ourselves that actually it does affect us corporately as well. I don't know how this relates to us, because I don't think anybody's in that situation where we're going to go and sell land and houses and bring it to the feet of Ian and Christy and the leadership team and say, have it. I, I don't think that relates to us this morning. But what is it that relates to us with regards to our duplicity? In what way we're being duplicitous? Let me give you an example, and where I think there's a challenge in, in the church, serving in the church. I think there's phenomenal resources in the church in terms of gifting, in terms of experience, in terms of life stuff. And yet actually, I think we live in a time and in a season and in a generation where we all hide behind one word. Busy. Busy. And what's at stake is a lot. I'll give you an example. At the moment, I think our children's and youth ministry are exploding. It's just amazing to see what God is doing. And it's God, because we're not doing anything different. It's God doing it. And yet we have people with experience, either professionally or in terms of their background, or in terms of the gifting, you know, with that kind of stuff. And yet they're not involved. And my prayer in this season, and Ian's prayer in this season, we're just saying, God, you know, in this season, you know, let me tell you, there's never going to be enough time in your life to serve God. Without sacrifice, it's just never going to happen. If you're going to always wait for that time when I'm going to have time, 
and I'm going to feel like I've got all the resources and all the, you know, it's never going to happen. And I, I think this could be an area where we can be a little bit duplicitous. We're saying, I'm busy. I'm busy. And you are busy. I am busy. You are busy. We're all busy. But actually, when ministry comes and an opportunity comes, where does the point where we're saying, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to do this. Maybe you're a teacher. I'm really stepping out of line here. But maybe you're a teacher here and you're thinking, I don't want to do kid stuff on Sunday. But frankly, because of the gifts that God had given you, you could, you know, show up and, and, and do something that somebody that isn't in that area, it would take them days to prepare a material and run a material while you could probably do it in 20 minutes and do it really well. Because God has gifted you. That's just an example. I'm not having to go to teachers. Just an example. It could be other areas of ministry. But we can be duplicitous. I was duplicitous. I won't tell the name of the person. They're in here and they sat in here. But they... Um, they, they encouraged me to go to something, and I didn't want to do it. So you do what you always do. You just pull out the, I'm busy card. And it's really nice, because that's the catchphrase that people meet me with. Christy, I didn't bother you because you were really busy. You know, I, I am busy, but I'm not that busy. And it's always probably best for you to tell me, because actually the kind of busy that you want to make me busy with is the kind of busy that I need to be busy with. <laughs> Right? Because sometimes, because you're not shouting with the busy that I need to be busy with, there's other people that want me to be busy with their stuff that I don't actually need to be busy with. <laughs> you're tracking. You're doing good. So this person said, you know, you, you, you know I, I think you should be coming to this. Or you should be doing this. I can't even remember what the detail was. I'm old. I'm nearly 50. So I said, I'm busy. You know, and they gently, and it was very inoffensive, but they gently turned around and said, don't lie. He says, you're not busy. I know that next week you're doing this and this and that. You're not busy. You just make a choice to prioritize certain things over certain things, and probably because you don't like to do the thing that I mentioned you to do. And he wasn't the boss. He wasn't Alan. It was somebody in the congregation. It was somebody who was on the leadership team at the time. And man, I just, that was a life-changing moment for me because I actually thought you're absolutely right. You know, I can make, I've got margin in my life for things that I am really passionate about and I want to do. And even if it means I'm staying up till I don't know what hour, I can do that. But if you're asking me to do something I don't particularly want to do, I'll just pull out the busy card. See, I was duplicitous. Thank God, you know, nobody asked the question next Sunday in the church, you know. But that's the challenge for all of us. In what areas are we being duplicitous? And it can be as subtle as that, where we're actually saying, yeah, no. You know, somebody needs to, go, to, to be visited. Somebody needs to be called, you know. And I'll tell you what else we say. Oh, I'm not doing it because other people are going to go and see them. You know. We're not going to go and see Robert in hospital because there's too many people that are going to be going and seeing them. And actually you find out there's nobody going and see them. Went to see my next door neighbor who's in a residential hall. And she said, apart from the family, nobody comes and sees me. And I'm thinking, what's it like in the church? are people who are housebound in the church. Who's popping in and seeing them? Who's ringing them every week? I remember when we used to have corded phones. Mom was always on the flipping phone, you know, talking to all the ladies in the church that couldn't get themselves to church. Every week, several of them, all the time. They knew everything. I mean, this was pre-streaming kind of stuff, you know, so obviously she had to fill them in on what was going on, and they loved that because they felt part of the church. But it was always going on. 
And now I think we've got, at the tip of our finger, we've got texting, we've got video calls, we've got so many opportunities. Are we doing it? Or are we just saying, I'm too busy, other people are going to do it. Other people are going to do it. They're not doing it. I'm telling you the truth. They're not doing it. If you're thinking somebody else is doing it, they're not doing it. Because we're all thinking the same thing. So that's the challenge that I think transports into our life right here, right now, with regards to what it could be ways in which we are coming here on a Sunday and we're kind of putting a front, but actually there's stuff in our lives that God wants to say, hey, I, I, I want you to become really honest about this. The story is told of an old sailor that was in the Navy hospital. He was in his dying moments, and as they do, they sent for a young priest to come and pray with him because the nurses were sensing that it was approaching the end. So the, the, the young priest came, and he said, he was probably a bit tone deaf, but he kind of used the phrase, he said, you know, my son, are you sorry for all your sins? He was probably his granddad's age. And the sailor t- looked at him, and to the astonishment of the priest, he says, to be honest with you, Padre, he says, I'm not. I've enjoyed all that whiskey I have drunk. I rather liked all the Jezebels in all the ports of the world. I know it's not probably what I'm supposed to say, but Padre, I'm going to be honest. I have to tell you, I'm not sorry. And probably some of the priests would have said, well, you be damned and go to hell, you know, because you're unrepentant and you're just an old reprobate and you deserve, because of your arrogance, to go there. But the the young priest was smart. He understood what patient grace was all about. So he turned around to the man, and he said, let me ask you another question. He says, are you sorry that you're not sorry? And the man said, that I am. That's the door of grace that opens the way for the kindness and goodness and mercy and love of God to come in. The picture I want to go away from this morning, both for yourself and myself, is that of a prodigal son who sinned against his father, he sinned against God, he messed up his life, he ruined everything, he wasted his inheritance, he, he could have been written off as a right loser. And yet there came a moment of a spiritual awakening in his life when he said, Enough of this. I'm going home. I'm going home to dad. Because deep down in his heart, there was this confidence that what was waiting for him at home was an embrace, not a scolding, not a telling off, not a lecture, not a I told you so. And so it happened. And as he was approaching home, he saw his father, who never, ever, ever, ever stopped looking for him and praying and hoping that his son, who insulted him, who mocked him, who embarrassed him in front of the whole community, he never, ever lost hope that his son was going to come home. And probably every day, he was there looking out. And one day, 
he saw him in the distance. Wasn't quite sure it was him because he looked rough. And at that moment, he forgot all the protocol. He left aside his dignity and he did what no father should have ever done to that son, but ran out to embrace him and welcomed him back into the home and honored him as a son and as an heir. That's the picture that Jesus himself gave to all those who are willing to come home. Don't stay there in a mess. Don't come and pretend and live a double life. But come before him in honesty and say, God, this is who I am. You already know. But I don't want to be like that. I want to be different. And I need your help. And the God who embraced the prodigal continues to do the same day in and day out. He embraces the prodigals. And the prodigals are all sat in this room. And my encouragement to you this morning is to just have that courage to say, Father, I'm coming home. I want to change. I want to leave the old life behind. And I want to be real. I want to be honest. I want to be authentic. I don't want to be a fake. I don't want to live a double life. But I need your help because I can't do it on my own. And grace upon grace upon grace is available to all those who want to come home. Beth and the team are going to lead us in worship as we respond. Just hear that call of the Father who's saying, come home, come to me. He wants to bring fullness and freedom, forgiveness, and just that amazing grace that's the oxygen for our souls that we couldn't live without. So let's stand together as they lead us in worship.